Up until this time, we have been talking about the divine service, which is the service of word and sacrament. Until the time of the Reformation, the liturgy of word and sacrament was the normal and regular service of every Sunday. And it was only at the time of the Reformation that the liturgy of the sacrament used to be celebrated more infrequently than every Sunday. Sunday as the Lord's Day is the day for the Lord's Supper, for the Lord's body. And since the Reformation, both the Lutheran Church and other Protestant churches have been gradually working back to having the Eucharist every Sunday. But the divine service is not the only way that Christ Christians celebrated the Lord's presence in their midst, nor is it the only way in which they mark time, because there are a series of services that developed at the very beginning that helped them recognize the hours of the day and the rhythm of the day. And these liturgies were called the liturgies of the hours, or what we simply might call them are the prayer services that we are accustomed to in matins and vespers, morning and evening prayer, or other types of prayer. Now, these liturgy of the hours started out very slowly, but gradually built up over a course of time until they had a wonderful way of, of speaking to the Christians of how it is that they might fulfill the, the admonition of, Christian, uh, of the scriptures to be constantly in prayer. Now, what does it mean to be constantly in prayer? Well, for early Christians, it was to simply begin to understand their life in Christ in a similar way in which the Jews understood their life in God. And that meant that at certain times during the day, they would stop wherever they were and offer up a prayer to God. Now, in the early Christian communities, this was done flowing out of the synagogue liturgy, which I have here listed from before. It was expressed in a very early Christian document that did not make its way into the scriptures, but is certainly a very, very um, orthodox document. And that is the document called the Didache, which simply means the teaching of the Holy Apostles. And in that, notice the dates here, 40 to 60. So this is during the, the, the period when the New Testament was written. The author of this document says that Christians are to pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day. Now, we think that those times of day were very simply this. In the morning when you woke up, at three in the afternoon when Christ died, and in the evening when you went to bed. Those would have been the first recognition of certain times in the day when one would take some time to be in prayer. One begins one day in prayer, one ends one's day in prayer, and then halfway through on the time when our Lord died, one remembers that moment by saying the Lord's Prayer. Now, about 200 years later, we, we have a document from a bishop in Rome by the name of Hippolytus who gives us even more details about how early Christians prayed. And it's interesting um, how he tells 
us that, that they prayed the Lord's Prayer and other prayers, but he gives us now a series of six times during the day when Christians would pray. The first set of times were associated with the Lord's passion. And he speaks about how Christians, no matter where they are, that they should take time out, pray at 9 a.m. when the Lord was first nailed to the tree, noon when he entered into the darkness, and 3 o'clock when he died. So there are three hours of prayer during the day that mark the Lord's passion. Then there are two hours, sunrise and sunset, at the beginning of the day and the end of the day, that mark the death and resurrection of Christ. Notice that this is again associated with our Lord's passion. And it's death and resurrection when the light dawns at the beginning of the day, where we give thanks that God is now bringing light into the world, and at the end of the day, when we give thanks that God has given us this light by which we can do the work that he has given us to do. And both the dawn of the light and the setting of the light are opportunities to remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. And finally, the prayer at bedtime would be an eschatological prayer. And again, this means a prayer that helps us to remember that someday we will be with the Lord, perhaps even this evening. Some of your children or grandchildren, maybe some of, some, some of you children say that prayer, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep if I should die. Now there's a sense of the end. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And this I ask for Jesus' sake, amen. Um, in the early Christian communities, this this prayer is known as compline, which is done at bedtime. We have a service of compline, and it has a wonderful sense of the end. The Lord Almighty grant us a quiet night and peace at the last. What a wonderful thing to say before you go to sleep. The Lord Almighty grant us a quiet night and peace at the last. Peace at the last. That's end times. That's, that's eschatological. Now, these very simple hours develop in the fourth century as the cathedral office, which means the office of prayer that would have been in the major churches. And here it would be now mostly the professional clergy that would be doing it, but also lay people, people, the saints themselves, could come and, and participate in this. And then later on in the 6th century, this becomes what is called the Benedictine office, which is the order of St. Benedict, who is a monk who began this series of prayers. And this is the one that even Luther would have probably had as an Augustinian monk. And notice how they mark the day by a series of prayer services. And here they would do simple sentences like we have in Matins and Vespers, Psalms, you know, those kinds of things. Down here, you'll see the basic structure now of what is called the Liturgy of the Hours, which would have been here. Instruction in the Word of God, praise of God, common prayer. Now, those three things are the things that we saw in the synagogue, too. So there's a very close relationship between the synagogue liturgy and these liturgies of prayer. But look at how they mark the day. Vespers was at the end of the working day, Compline at bedtime. Notice that they're starting in the, in the evening. Nocturne, vigils, matins in the middle of the night, 
Now they'd get up in the, in the evening to, to say these prayer services. Lauds at daybreak, prime shortly thereafter, terse, which simply means the third hour at 9 a.m., sext at noon, and none, the ninth hour, at 3 p.m. And this becomes the rhythm of the life of the, the, uh, the, the, the monastery and the convent. Now, these hours are reduced by Luther into three main offices. And this is what we have inherited in our liturgical life as Lutherans. And that is we begin the day with matins, we end the day with vespers, and before bedtime we have compline as an, as a, as an alternative there. And these three were the ones that Luther brought back out of all of these hours that, that he would have celebrated as a monk as the three main liturgy of the hours to recognize the day. Um, and his, his order was very simple. Scripture, he restores preaching to the, to the liturgy of the hours, psalms, hymns, prayers, and a blessing. And this is very similar to the hours that we have, matins, vespers, compline, morning and evening prayer are just other ways of saying matins and vespers. And it's very similar in, in many ways to what we do now. Uh, one of the differences is that we have a, a, a return here in our order to, to the opening sentences, the canticles, the psalmody that, that one would have seen in the earlier period of the church's life. Now, what is wonderful about the Liturgy of the Hours is the statement by the church that it is constantly in prayer. And that means that every day, in the morning, in the evening, at bedtime, the people of God are praying for church and world. Now, Lutherans have really lost a sense of coming together and praying. Um, if you go to other denominations, you will see that they have a, a more lively sense of needing to come together and do this on a regular daily basis. Um, if you were to go to England, for example, and you were to drive through the countryside early in the morning when it was time for matins, and you came across a church when it was advertised that they would be having matins, you could walk into that church or almost any church in England, and the pastor would be in there whether or not there were people or not, and he would be saying matins. He would be praying matins, he would say. And he would be going through the liturgy praying for the church and for the world, saying the psalms, and then later in the evening, they call it evensong, but in the end of the day, if you were driving around England, you could stop at a church and you could go in and there he would be saying evensong, praying for church and world. This is the rhythm of the church's life between divine services, between divine services, as it prepares from week to week to come into the holy presence of God. Now, when they would pray, it's important to see that they would pray for church and world. They would first pray for the community here, the saints, and all her needs. Pray for those who are sick, those who are suffering, the poor, anyone who has any needs in their midst. Pray for, for the, 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 the pastors in the local area. Pray for the bishop. This would also be a time when they would pray for the, the world, whether it be the king or the queen or the president or whatever. And they would pray for whatever 
great, you know, kind of uh, national or international tragedies might be there. But it was a time to offer up to God the petitions of the people of God so that, not that God would know that these things are happening because God already knows that, but to help us, the people of God, to wrap our minds around the needs that we have both in church and world that we need to be uh, aware of so that we can come to understand what is happening in our midst and that what is happening is according to the good and gracious will of God. So that just as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, so we also pray, Lord, not my will be done, but thy will be done. The divine service that we have on uh, before the um, yeah, for fifteen hundred years, sixteen hundred years, the the primary service on Sunday morning was always a service of what word and sacrament. They would come together around the divine service, and that was sort of the normal way uh, that we got together to worship until about what time? Really, until the Reformation. Um, that's when it began being celebrated. Less, frequency, less, less frequently as the primary service on, on Sundays. A couple different things played into that. Um, the first is the, the professional Christians of the, of the priesthood at that time were celebrating Masses, and when they say celebrating Masses, they meant basically doing the words of institution um, for hire. Monasteries or churches would have priests ordained and appointed for doing masses at the request request of the of the people. You could you would pay a certain fee and someone would say a mass for a particular reason to to eliminate time in purgatory for for someone in particular living or dead. Um, to, to make sort of atonement for, for particular sins that they committed or things like that. By, having, by hiring the priest to do the words of institution and the Lord's Supper, basically, in your, on your behalf or something, they were, were being taught somehow one God's favor. You know, you would sort of have a bank account, and by, by paying in to have the priest do these things, you would sort of increase your balance. Or it was more like a credit card. It was more like actually paying down your debt <laughs> was what they were trying to accomplish. And so 
the, the actual celebration of the Mass and the Lord's Supper actually went away from even receiving it for us to eat and drink. We saw that even in the primary service on Sundays, that the people were no longer even eating and drinking the body and blood of Christ at the celebration of the Mass. It was being elevated, bells were rung, so they could simply see it. And just by being around it, somehow that got them God's favor. So that's the trouble with legalism. Once you get into a legalistic understanding of something like God's favor, forgiveness, or even the Lord's Supper, once it becomes a legal requirement of things, then our sinful nature begins to find ways to take advantage of it, use it, leverage it for our good, or work around the, the laws that are being sort of framed in around the thing. And so when Luther comes along, the Lord's Supper, if you will, masses are being celebrated all the time, all day long in all kinds of different places. But the people are not receiving it hardly at all. So the frequency of its celebration is very, very high, but its reception is very, very low. You know, if we were to do a little, little chart of that, you know, you'd have, uh, you know, here's your, you know, here's uh, uh, celebrations and, uh, and receptions. <laughs> You know, there's our, there's our little graph. Luther comes along and says, no, no, no. Saying the words, going through the motions, doing the thing is not, it is, is um, idolatrous and ritualistic and it misses what the Lord's Supper is there for us. The Lord's Supper is, is Christ's true body and blood under the bread and wine given for us Christians to eat and drink, eat and drink. And so the daily masses, the, the daily repetitious over and over trying to win God's favor are eliminated from, from, the, from the reformers' traditions. And so the, the actual recitation and celebration of the masses, if you will, begins to decline until we're down to, you know, uh, feast days, uh, Sundays, and, and sometimes, you know, weekly or maybe weekly and daily, but not for any other reason than for the people to receive it. Luther's instructions were that if, if the pastor is there and he is celebrating the Lord's Supper and there are no, there are no communicants to receive it, you, you just go on without it. If there's nobody there, then you don't just do it for the sake of doing it. Okay? So there were still daily celebrations as well, but not over and over and over as fast as you can over and over again, because you've got a quota for that day. You know, oh, I got, I got, I got 63 to do today. You know, how are you, Jim? You know, punching in everything. Hey, Tom. Hey, Jim. You know, it's like, you know, you know, working the factory line on the, on the celebration of the masses. But, um, but on the other hand, Luther's emphasis on given for us Christians to eat and to drink move the celebration of the Masses, the, the Lord's Supper, away from simply observing it to actually receiving it. And so even as the, the actual celebrations are going down, the receptions of the Lord's Supper in the lives of the people is, is increasing. The people themselves are receiving it more frequently because they're, they're receiving it every Sunday. Whereas before it might have been couple times a year 
because they had set up laws that say, you know, the, the legalism of, of the Roman church at the time said, you have to take it at least twice a year. And maybe that's where we got the, the, the concept of coming on Christmas and Easter, perhaps, or something. You know, it's like there was the law that said you had to do it at least this many times. And um, the Lutherans basically said, no, it's not a matter of how many times you take it. It's a matter of, Luther said, when you ask yourself, do I need to re receive the Lord's Supper? He said, here's how you can tell. Put your hand over your heart. Go ahead, play, play along here. Is it beating? Okay, you need the Lord's Supper. Nice, huh? Right? That, that seems pretty simple. That's a, there's a good measure for us. So, so the reception of it was becoming more frequent. Into the 1600s, into the 1600s, a movement within the church developed that began focusing more on the individual experience of God's grace than on the, the objective reality that God gives us grace. And what it, what it focused on was, you know you're really forgiven when you really feel it, or you really experience it, or you're really sincere about being sorry for your sins. Now, scriptures say if, if you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. Uh, it talks about being repentant, being contrite, you know, repenting, confessing our sins. Um, pietism, which is the name of this, this movement in the 1600s, pietism, was focused more on, do you really mean it? Now, if somebody comes and confesses their sins, and we look at them and we say, do you really mean that? Because if you don't really mean it, you're not forgiven. Does that give somebody certainty or uncertainty? Yeah, because all of a sudden you ask yourself, do I really mean it? You know, because I did the sin, and I'll be honest, while I was doing the sin, I enjoyed it. <laughs> and then if you fall into that sin again, all of a sudden you're, you get trapped into this cycle of, of, of uh, of uncertainty, of questioning, of am I really sincere? Do I really feel it enough? And the responsibility then for being forgiven then falls upon whom? You. It focuses you inward to say, did I experience it? Did I feel it? God's love for me is only determined by whether I have, have felt it in some particular way, rather than looking at it and saying, you know, when, when Jesus said, Lazarus, come out, Lazarus didn't have to say, am I feeling it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rise from the dead with vigor today. I'm not just going to go through the motions. I'm going to mean rising from the dead. It just doesn't follow. What Jesus declares happens. So when you come and receive the body and blood of the Lord for the forgiveness of your sins, what do you receive when you receive the body and blood of the Lord? The forgiveness of your sins. There are going to be some times that you do that that you're going to be like, that, that, it's, that it can become emotionally overwhelming. Because you know who gave you your emotions? God did. <laughs> and they're good things. They're also very fickle things. And so at the times that you say, you know, oh, I, I, I'm confessing my sins, I'm sorry for my sins, I know I'm forgiven, um, but it wasn't a breakdown in tears, 
um, you know, I'm changing my life today kind of experience. Does God really love me? Does he really forgive me? All of a sudden, forgiveness in the Lord's Supper becomes a matter of uncertainty, of insecurity, rather than the objective truth that says, you are free. If you go to a judge and the judge says, not guilty, do you, do you have to say, but do I really feel not guilty? The reality is still true. And, and that is the difference. That, the error that pietism fell, brought, drew the church into was this subjective sense that your forgiveness or God's love for you is only true if you experience it or feel it in some particular way. Jeannie. That's right. Yeah. I had a, um, a friend of mine, he was a professor at Concordia in St. Paul. Um, you've kind of heard about the three uses of the law, you know, the curb, mirror, and guide. It, it, um, it, it, the law um, shows us our sin, it shows us how we should live, and it prevents, you know, kind of gross outbursts of sin. He kind of talked about, you know, this is sort of a theoretical musings of the mind sort of thing. He said, there's kind of a fourth use of God's law. And he, he called it the, the satanic use of God's law. Because you know who really likes to use God's law? Satan does. Because he likes to put it back in your face and say, remember this? Remember this one? You remember that? You call yourself a Christian. That's Satan using our own sinful nature. And even God's, well, God's law does say that. But you know what? That's not God's final word on your sin. God's final word on your sin is forgiveness. So you're right. Satan loves for us to doubt the truth that says you are forgiven. Jim. You know, another thing that ties in there, if you're really repentant, then why do it again? And then that creates the doubt. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you were, and it, it overlooks this sense that we are both sinner and saint. Even St. Paul talked about the good that I know I should do, I don't, and what I don't want to do, that I keep on doing. Who will save me from this body of death? But thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ who gives us the victory. We have that tension on this side of eternity. Okay? So, pietism made everything sort of very subjective about your feelings and your emotions, your experiences. This led to things like Methodism, where... Um, uh, the Methodist Church began with Wesley's experience of his heart strangely warmed having heard something in church, or having when he was reading Scripture and he had his heart strangely warmed, and I finally felt the experience of God's love for me, and he created a, a way, a method, get it? Of being able to experience that in your life. And this is still very extant in today's in today's world. There are many churches, including the Lutheran Church, including the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, that, that still are, are, are influenced and affected by pietism and the wondering of our emotions and our certainty of things. So you go to the bookstore and you see books like Experiencing God. Get it? You, you, you look at things that, if things are designed and positioned to, to 
influence your emotions with the hope of creating a spiritual response, that's pietism. The, the revivalism of the 1800s, where you'd have um, like this guy named Finney, he's this, this kind of wild-eyed preacher, you know, and they, they'd have these big revivals, and they'd go on for days, and there'd be faith healings and all this craziness going on. All that was designed to hype up your emotions and your experiences, and then he would say, now that's experiencing God. Or it could be a chemical response to your body. It could be one or the other. You know, you, 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 go to a, you go to a major sporting event with tens of thousands of people around you, it's just flat out exciting. And that's kind of what, it's designed to do that to you. And if, we, if, if we're trying to manipulate emotions or experiences and then renaming that experiencing God, then we're missing the objective de- declarations of God's word. So with pietism and all this subjectiveness, coming to church every Sunday and receiving the Lord's Supper, the, the, the teachers in that, in that movement began to say, yes, but it's only really effective if, you, if it's special. We need to make sure that receiving the Lord's body and blood feels special so it does what it says it does. And if you do something every week or every time you come to church, our sinful nature very much begins to say, what about it? It doesn't feel... Yeah, yeah. And so they began to celebrate it less and less frequently. And one of the, ex- one of the reasons for that, one of the definitions, explanations of that was, we want to make sure that it's still special. Because if it's special, then you'll mean it. And if you mean it, then it works. So make sure then that you only tell your spouse that you love them three times a year because you want it to be special when they say it. Does that make any sense? No. Yeah. 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 <laughs> only, take, only take your prescriptions eh, once a week so that it's special when you take it. Does that make any sense? It doesn't. It doesn't. And it doesn't make sense with the Lord's Supper either because it's the objective truths of what the Lord's Supper is over and against our, uh, what our sinful nature would begin to say, you know, that's ordinary or that's, how can that be so special? We do it every week. But it's like, wow, but no, this is God's presence among us. All that we've been talking about with why we come and worship to receive the gifts of God for the presence of heaven and earth coming together in the Lord's service, in, on the Lord's day. Um, our sinful nature is the part of us that says, this is ordinary. But our faith says, this is heaven and earth coming together. You know, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. You know, glory to God in the highest. This is the feast. You know, this is what our faith clings to. And depending on where you are in life on any particular time or day or something, your emotions are going to rise and fall with those things. But the realities are still there. You're still fed and nourished. You know, the, the meals that you eat that aren't particularly tasty or memorable, guess what? They still fed you and nourished you. You know, uh, Jim, what, what, Jim, what'd you have for supper last Tuesday? No idea. No idea. Pastor, what, what, what did I preach on six weeks ago? I have no idea. I'd have to go look it up. But it would be 
but you were still fed and nourished by that meal. You were still fed and nourished by that sermon, by that service, by God's word, by what he did. Your faith was nourished. It's what God does. And some of them are going to be memorable. I remember what I had at our wedding. It was, it was chicken fingers and ham sandwiches and lots of appetizers. It was really cool. I even ate some of it. <laughs> so, and ice cream cake for the wedding cake. We had Dairy Queen ice cream cake for our wedding cake. It was awesome. <laughs> and um, it, so there are going to be some meals in your life that stick out. And there are going to be some services, some, some sermons, some, some Bible passages, things, some opportunities to receive the Lord's Supper that are going to stick out in your mind. The first time, the last time with someone in particular, those are going to be times that stick out in your mind. And that's good. God gave you that gift of emotion and memory. But it doesn't change the reality of what is affected by his gifts. They still work. And so pietism is really where we, we got into, even in the Missouri Synod, and we saw this 17-1800s in the Missouri Synod, Quarterly celebrations of the Lord's Supper, once every four months. We can look at the records of St. Paul. It's a fact. Happened here. About once, once, every four, once every four months, quarterly. Some of it was, when was the pastor even here, if they were in a circuit rider sort of mission situation. But a lot of it was, when it happens, it has to be special. And into the, uh, into the 1900s and, and into today, the frequency of the celebration and reception of the Lord's Supper, those go together, is on, is on the rise again. For example, twice a month now is pretty common. You know, most, most churches in the Missouri Synod will have, you know, first and third or second and fourth or, and then festivals and, you know, they say, you know, yeah, it's a festival. We should have the Lord's Supper. You know, that's, that's becoming more and more common. And it's actually even more and more common now to get back to what the church had always had is the Sunday celebration being a celebration of both word and sacrament as our regular, as our regular pattern of things. So, and that just is going to be in every individual location and place and setting as, as you, we, we study it and we learn about it and we begin to say, what does God give us? What should we be doing? What do we need? What do we want? And, and how do we worship as the body of Christ? So, you know, I'm thankful for, you know, first and third, and then we have the opportunity also to use services like matins during um, Lent and Advent, using services like Vespers or evening prayer, things like that. There are lots of, lots of very rich and varied ways that we get to come and worship, worship our Lord. And, and we can give thanks to God that it's all steeped in His Word. The responses in matins and Vespers throughout all of the divine service all find their source in God's Word. You know, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Psalms. The confessions that we use. Psalms. Uh, New Testament. All over the Scriptures. All coming out of, out of those things. So, Jim. You know, you talk about special things that happen at certain times. I remember getting a phone call from Virginia when my mother passed away and my sister said she'd come out of the hospital and there was a rainbow in the sky. Wow. And we're up here in Ohio and there was a double rainbow. Huh. The same, the same day. Wow. And I'm thinking, now what's the rainbow? A promise. 
God's promise that says, I am with you. Yeah, yeah. Oop. Uh-oh. Somebody lost their tea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, there's, now the word pietism, this is kind of one thing I want to wrap up. Um, there's, there's piety. Piety is the word for your, your, the, the practice of your faith. You know, your piety today is that you come to church and you came to Bible class. That's what your piety, your holy living does. So, but pietism is where it's, um, it's how you live that and do you really mean it and sort of uh, policing moral behavior and, and really it becomes a very legalistic structure around things. And I like to sort of summarize it like this. Piety is concerning yourself with your religious practice. Pietism is concerning yourself with everybody else's. <laughs> so, uh, there's the, one is good, and one is scriptural and faithful, you know, focusing on I repent, and the other one is going around and saying, you need to, you know, you, 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 instead. And that's not, that's not what we're all about here. So, um, so yeah. Um, questions maybe a little bit about the, the daily offices that we the, that the that the church was using as we got about five minutes left here um, offices um, yeah it's um, like uh, the, the Latin word for office is um, is just like an appointment a place you know not an appointment like what time is it but like to be designated for something so you know the, the prayer designation for 9 a.m. was this. So that was a prayer office. You know, I hold the office of the pastor. I'm appointed to be the pastor. It's my framework in which I use. That's where the office comes from. How often were they, how often were they worshiping like that? How many, how many office, about every, about every three hours. And it started from observing what? The passion, yeah, nine, noon, and three. You know those three hours, and so um, you had um, uh, uh, tears, which is three, the third hour, uh, sext, which is the sixth hour, and none, which is the ninth hour. Those are the hours that Jesus was hung on the cross. Darkness fell, and he died. And then they added to him what? What other two sort of instances in the day? Yep, sunrise and sunset. Sunrise. <laughs> yeah, because that's so. How, how does the day begin, and how does our day end? And uh, well, if you're going to do it at sunset, then we'll also do it before we go to, before we go to bed. So that's where some of those prayer offices began to get get structured in there. So, yeah. Some of you do your daily devotions in the morning. Some of you do your daily devotions in the evening. Some of you do it before bed. Guess what? That's not a big surprise. You know, because those are the times of day that we sort of set time aside for things. And so, and so the church had also. Um, if they're praying every three hours, it kind of gives the idea that the church is always doing what? Is always praying. Yeah, I mean, and that's a scriptural thing that, that uh, Paul talks about, you know, pray without ceasing. You know, always be in prayer and things. And so that was something that they were doing. It'd be wonderful if they were doing it in particular, or we did it in particular, for the sake of um, not something that it earns for ourselves, but to constantly be in prayer for 
everything that's around us. It's it's a it's a it's a interceding sort of at, um, posture and attitude uh, versus we got to do it every three hours so that God likes us. <laughs> it's a very different way of looking at it. So, but doing it as a gift to be able to say, I'm going to start my day with prayer. I'm going to end my day with prayer. These are good things. These are good ways to, to frame your whole day. Luther would talk about, I have so much to do today, I had to pray extra. <laughs> you know, Instead of, I have so much to do today, I don't have time to pray. It was, I've got so much to do today, I need to pray extra. I like that. That's very good. That's, that's pretty good. Yeah, start and end it, you know, frame it, hem it in prayer, and it won't come unraveled. I like that. Gee. Yeah. And there was people all over the world praying for Lucy, and because there's different time zones, yeah. it was a comfort. Isn't that nice to know? To know that somebody was praying for their child. Yeah. At all these different hours. What did they say about the British Empire? The empire upon which the sun. It's not the, it's not the British Empire, it's the church. <laughs> the church is the empire upon which the sun never sets. Because there's Christians all around the world. Pretty neat. Pretty neat. I got to let you go. But, um, uh, Yeah. Yeah. That's terrific. Thank you, Anita. That's terrific. Well, God's blessings, everybody. We'll uh, we'll see you next week. In uh, in two weeks, we'll have uh, confirmation celebration during this time, and uh, and then it's Mother's Day, and then. We're well into May and all kinds of stuff. So, God's blessings to you all. So, yeah, my privilege. Hello, how are you? So, good morning, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, good. Looking forward to this afternoon. So, hey, Chris.